0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Policy Perspectives Pod, where we talk about some pertinent political topics. I'm Maya Rao, and as always, we are recording live from Duke University. Guys, do you want to introduce yourselves for our first-time listeners?
1: Sure. I'm Joe Robinson, a current sophomore studying public policy and history. And I'm Coleman Prince,
2: also a sophomore studying public policy and history. And I'm Stuart Rowling, and I'm a freshman
3: studying public policy and economics.
0: Today we'll be talking about a pretty relevant topic coming off of an election, partisan gerrymandering. Coleman, why don't you start us off and share how gerrymandering even started?
2: Yeah, so the actual phrase gerrymandering was coined in 1812 after Federalists commented that illustrator Elkina Tisdale's rendering of a recently redrawn senatorial district in Massachusetts looked like a salamander. So poet Richard Alsop, who was there, said the beast or district was in fact a gerrymander, referring to the Democrat-Republican Massachusetts governor at the time, Elbridge Gerry. He signed the bill putting redistricting into law. In the Massachusetts state legislature, the Democrat-Republicans held the majority and they passed the bill eventually signed by Gerry. So prior to this, districts were determined by county boundaries. Essex County was a Federalist stronghold before the law was passed, but with the new districts in play, Democrat Republicans flipped three out of the five seats, increasing their majority, even though Federalists received the majority of the vote statewide. So 30 years later in 1842, Congress tries to deal with gerrymandering and they passed a law that required states to use single member districts and wait until the census to redraw districts. So in reality, this law had no enforcement mechanisms and the single member district requirement increased the opportunity to gerrymander greatly. And it did. So every year from 1862 to 1896, at least one state redrew its congressional district boundaries. So looking at the 20th century, as America evolved, gerrymandering remained important. In 1911, Congress removed the requirement for newly apportioned districts to have equal populations and states stopped waiting until the release of the census every 10 years to reapportion districts. Later with the great migration and influx of European immigrants, Demographics in the north congressional districts were altered greatly. Republicans who drew support from rural areas feared losing seats to the increasingly immigrant population, and debates about redistricting intensified even more. So the rise of computers in the 70s and 80s offered new methods for gerrymandering. For example, in 1980s California, Phil Burton and Howard Berman used computer software to maximize Democrat majorities, in what was at the time an increasingly republican state supreme court cases like baker v carr and david v. bendemir which stewart will talk about later wrestled with the issue of gerrymandering so that's kind of a rundown on what gerrymandering has looked like in the past joe can you tell us what gerrymandering looks like now and how it affects the political process
1: yeah of course so currently some of the most gerrymandered states include ohio maryland michigan and wisconsin What I actually wanna hone in on are two specific states in which we see the effects of massive gerrymandering in specific, Pennsylvania and the great state we currently reside in, North Carolina. So prior to the 2016 election, both Pennsylvania and North Carolina were notorious for gerrymandering. Now we see in both states' election cycles from 2016, the Democrats in specific won 48% and 47% of their state's popular vote respectively. However, when it came to representation in the House, Democrats only accounted for 27% in Pennsylvania and 23% in North Carolina. In 2018 is where we see the difference. Pennsylvania, prior to the election, redistricted their gerrymandered regions. And as a consequence, Democrats won 53% of the popular vote, and their House representation increased 21% to a whopping 48% representation in the House. Now in opposition, North Carolina failed to redistrict their gerrymandered regions prior to the 2018 election cycle. Democrats' popular vote increased to a majority of 52%, but their House representation? Stagnant. Despite the 5% increase in popular votes, Democrats only retained the three House seats that they had won in the 2016 election, once again conceding the 10 others to Republicans. Clearly, gerrymandering prohibits proper representation of the state's overall political views, but the detrimental effect goes far beyond that. In public policy, the lack of representation from specific groups based on race and economic status is extremely harmful. Without these groups being represented by a legislator that comes from their same background, it is often difficult to ensure with certainty that their perspective is taken into account when making policy decisions. We see it today where certain communities are overwhelmingly underrepresented in state legislators and thus fail to stand a fair chance of having their voices heard on an important systematic level gerrymandering as a whole can make it hard harder for new officials to be elected as it often favors the incumbent so it even skews the democratic value of a fair election process as well a mayor with an issue this prominent and deep rooted in our nation's history where do we even begin yeah, to remedy so there are a few
0: thing? different strategies that have been proposed for how to kind of curtail this partisan gerrymandering obviously one of the most common proposals has been to have independent unaffiliated redistricting committees draw the maps to protect from partisan influences. However, this process can be quite complicated, so I'm going to introduce a couple of new methods today. The first method comes from Dr. Pegden and Dr. Prakosha of Carnegie Mellon University, and it's what they call, I cut, you freeze. Similar to how two children might split a cookie in half, it allows two parties to alternate between drawing the districts and choosing which districts to keep. In short, one party draws a map for the state Then they hand that map over to the other party who would choose one of those districts to keep and in a sense freeze it. Then that party would cut the remaining area of the state into new districts. They continue this back and forth process until all of the districts in the state have been drawn. This method allows both parties to have an equal say in the process and be really considerate when drawing districts because they don't want to get left with the short end of the stick. The second method comes from Professor Cho at the University of Illinois and involves the use of computer algorithms to ensure nonpartisan maps. Supercomputers are able to take in inputs that the court requires for congressional districts, such as roughly roughly equal sized districts by population, contiguous districts, meaning districts must be connected, and then they can run algorithms to make anywhere between thousands and billions of possible nonpartisan maps. Legislators can compare these computer generated maps to the existing map for the state, and if none of the combinations match, it is presumed that some bias and partisan will be incurred. On the other side, you can also insert political information like voting patterns along party lines and create maps based on those partisan inputs. If a resulting map looks like the existing map for a state, you have even more convincing evidence that partisan gerrymandering was probably involved. There are also more unprecedented and exhaustive proposals, such as completely reimagining how legislatures are even structured. If maps were drawn with a fewer number of districts, voters would elect multiple representatives for each district in the legislature, and this election process in itself makes it much more difficult to gerrymander. So, Stuart, what's stopping us from introducing these kinds of solutions?
3: Yeah, Maya, so you mentioned nonpartisan redistricting commissions, and those might be up in legal limbo in the near future because the Roberts Court has recently signaled in Democratic National Committee v. Wisconsin State Legislature from 2020 that they want to that they are leaning towards a literal interpretation of a part of the Constitution that says, quote, legislatures, end quote, should be setting election rules. However, that interpretation contradicts a century of judicial precedent that says that the word legislature doesn't just mean state legislatures, but other statewide actors in the legislative process, such as state Supreme Courts, the state executive branch, etc., the main challenge to the multi-member districts that you mentioned just now is the Uniform Congressional District Act, passed in 1967. It mandated that all congressional districts be of equal population for one representative. At the time, this was because urban and predominantly minority districts were underrepresented underrepresented in comparison to more overrepresented rural wider districts. Congress would have to repeal the Uniform Congressional District Act to allow legislators in various states to be elected from multi-member districts. Now to court decisions when it comes to gerrymandering. The first we really see is in 1962's Baker v Carr. This essentially allowed, this essentially gave the judiciary permission to uh, interfere in redistricting and as a result we see today one of the main avenues for opponents of gerrymandering is to allow a map of congressional districts to go to federal court to have it struck down. But this avenue was met with a large amount of limitations specifically because of further li- further judicial precedent that was set later, such as Davis v. Bendemir in 1986. It expanded upon Baker and ruled that it claims of partisan gerrymandering were, li- were li- uh, judiciable and they were able, able to be litigated. However, the court couldn't really agree upon a standard that could be used to determine if a legislative actor had engaged in partisan gerrymandering, which is why, up until recently, partisan gerrymandering faced almost no repercussions. No incumbent would ever admit to the reason as to why they redistricted so in such a partisan way. So it becomes difficult to make credible accusations off of implied intent. And just last year, Rucho v. Common Cause overturned Davis v. Bendemir. What SCOTUS has essentially ruled on the topic is that it's not their jurisdiction when it comes to partisan gerrymandering. And in essence, they're leaving the issue of how to deal with it it, to state Supreme Courts. So that's where we're at today. A lot of back and forth jurisdiction, with some state courts taking up the question of partisan gerrymandering and others not, oftentimes due to the partisan affiliation of the justices themselves. Well, the impact of this back and forth has led to some victories when it comes to gerrymandering. As a whole, it fragments accountability from state to state, which has ultimately prolonged a concrete enforcement policy.
1: So, yeah, that's our 10-minute rundown on partisan gerrymandering. Hope you all learned about the history of gerrymandering and its implications on policy today. If you want to learn more, we'll leave a reading list in the description for you to check out. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you guys next week where we'll learn about the four villains of decision-making.